you can knock me if you want. You'd be pretty damn brave to do it, but don't knock my husband or children unfairly. You may not agree with George, but don't lie about it. Former First Lady Barbara Bush. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Sometimes when I interview celebrities, they are exactly the way I expected them to be. But sometimes they say or do something that surprises me a little. And I was surprised a little at former First Lady Barbara Bush, the wife of George H.W. Bush, our 41st president. When I met her in 1994, when she wrote her memoir, I was a little unprepared for how simple, how straightforward, how folksy Mrs. Bush was. Talking with her was almost like talking to my own mom or one of her friends. Now, it's important to remember that Barbara Bush holds the distinction of being only the second woman behind Abigail Adams to be the wife of one president and the mother of another. Now, one thing you'll hear us refer to in this interview is an incident that took place just a couple of days before our interview. A young man stole a light plane and tried to land on the White House South Lawn, but crashed there instead, and he was killed. No one else was injured, though, but it made the news for a couple of days, obviously. Oh, and you'll also hear in this interview why Barbara Bush finally quit smoking. So here now, from 1994, Barbara Bush. I wrote a book because I th- several publishers came to me and made me an offer I couldn't say no to. But I'd kept diaries for years and letters, and uh, some people, I think... Um, go to psychiatrists or whatever. I didn't have time to do that, so I kept a diary, and I loved it. And when the computer came into my life, then I really loved my journal, more a journal than a diary. I didn't do it by day, but by feel. And um, I just, uh, when they made the offer, I had more notes. I was like Yogi Berra at Insurmountable Opportunities. And I loved writing the book. And it was great for me. And I never would have considered having a ghostwriter, to tell you the honest truth. It reads so smoothly. It reads as though you did have one. No, no. I had a good friend, Jean Becker, who had worked in my office, who used to work at USA Today, actually. And uh, Jean came down to Houston with me, and she helped write speeches for me. And she spell-checked and fact-checked. And then when I got through writing a chapter, I would give it to her, and she would say, uh, Mrs. Bush, you said this in the last chapter, or don't you want to move this into the next chapter? And so she helped smooth it. And we had a very good time uh, writing. I did, writing the book. I loved it. It reminded me when I got through writing it that I am the world's luckiest living human. I mean, I've had a wonderful parents and a wonderful life and a husband I love more than life and five children that I feel the same way about and I love all their spouses and I have 13 wonderful grandchildren. And I've met all the world leaders. The other day, I woke up in New York and I talked to George that night and said to him, you know, when I woke up this morning and I saw the airplane go into the White House, I thought, I've lived there. And then I watched the news, and darling Jessica Tandy died, and I knew her. And uh, Arafat met with um, Rabin. I knew him. And I got everyone on the news, with the exception of Arafat, I had met, thanks to George Bush. There wasn't one person I didn't know on the news. 
And I got, I got thinking, I am the luckiest person in the world. Did it alarm you a little bit uh, when, when you saw the plane come in and, and uh, on the White House grounds? Had things gone differently in November of 92, and had the White House not been undergoing renovation? And had the... No, 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 no I didn't. you in that bedroom. No, it didn't really alarm me. It, um, I didn't like it, but I was just very grateful nobody was hurt. There are a lot of people working at that house, even though the president's not there. There are a lot of people who stand guard outside, and there are engineers there 24 hours a day, and... And that would have bothered me. And I was darn sorry about the Andrew Jackson tree because we have, I kept saying to that tree, don't you die on my watch. He planted it and it's a beautiful magnolia tree and I hope it's all right. But that's one of the things, uh, not plane crashes on the lawn, of course, but that one of the things that you have to get used to is having all these legions of people around you doing everything for you at the White House. Well, that's tough to have all these legions of wonderful people doing (laughs) things for you. No, it couldn't be more fun. Uh, You know, one of the things, the president has a very tough job. And one of the things that's very nice is that uh, anything that can make his life easier just that way. And this is the happiest house, the best people you've ever known in your life, the nicest people Everybody is dedicated to saying the President of the United States is at least comfortable and life is made that way easy for him. And I think that's very important. One of the things about this house is that uh, nobody ever talked about our predecessors. That's pretty nice. You You are safe. It's a safe house. That there is a, a simplicity about your your life, your approach to life. There's there's an elegant simplicity about it. I think that's probably true. But I think you, when you get as old as I am, sixty nine. I mean, that's older than you can believe. But uh, <laughs> when you get sixty nine, if you haven't made some sort of uh, philosophy in life, first of all, I'm I'm really lucky. I told you that, and I do believe in God, and we have a lot of friends and great family, but I also think there's several lessons to learn in life, and one is you ought never to cry over what you can't have. Don't look back. Look forward. And and that's a good lesson. It's very easy. And I think in most cases you have two choices in life. You can like what you do, or you can dislike it. I have chosen to like it. Sometimes I haven't loved it, but by darn, I've chosen to like it. And People, I like to be around people who I think are contented and happy and trying to do more things and are looking ahead. Do you sometimes, as the as the wife of a prominent politician, do you sometimes feel that people are nice to you just because they think you might put in a good word for them with George, or do they like you for you? Well, I don't know, but you know, we went into the business with a lot of very close, good friends. And uh, there's nothing more important than that. So you know about them before you got there. You wouldn't have gotten there without them, if the truth be known. Some people don't need friends. George Bush and I really need friends. And they were there before and they were there after. And that makes a difference. But I think we made a lot of good new friends along the way, too. You know how short our collective memories are. We sometimes tend to see politicians or or whoever's in the public light at the moment 
as never having had a life before that. That's who they are when we That's know them. Right. And the, it, when a book like yours comes along and shows us your childhood, your your courtship, the war years, the the years with Zapata, That's right. uh, all those years that preceded before Mr. Bush ever even came into the public light. That's right. You know, one of the uh, things someone asked me today, how to, you know, um, how do you feel about politicians? And I said, well, you know, I don't like, I don't dislike anyone, but I don't like the professional politician. I want my politician not only to be decent and honest, but I want him to have been in the radio business, in the oil business, a doctor, whatever. I want him to have faced life as it really is, paid taxes, been part of the community, helped with the United Fund, uh, raised a family. And that's what George did, and that's what our two boys in Texas are doing. Both of those young men who are running for governor, and Florida, I should say, Texas and Florida, but both of them have been successful in business and have strong families, and both have worked hard in their party and in their state. And um, I think that's important. And I think we're going to see that in Congress now. We're having a tremendous turnover. We had 100 new members in 93. And we're going to, we know we're going to have 63 new members because they've resigned. So we're going to get a new Congress and they're going to be people who have, I hope, been out there. Does it dismay you then when during the heat of a campaign, people dismiss your husband as just another career politician who doesn't even know what a grocery store scanner is? But of course, you and all, I know that that was a, state-of-the-art, never-been-seen-before scanner, and there was a retraction in the New York Times, but it was written actually by a young man who wasn't even at the convention. But yes, it distresses me because it's in the nexus or the computer now for life, but the... Pass that off, move on, forget it. But it was a lousy thing to do. You really have to strap on some pretty thick armor when you're going to get into a political campaign, don't you? Even even as the spouse of a candidate. You sure do. More as a spouse, because uh, you can you can knock me if you want. You'd be pretty damn brave to do it, but uh, <laughs> you don't knock my husband or children unfairly. I mean, there's a difference. You may not agree with George, but don't lie about him. Were some campaigns over the years more difficult for you to handle than others? That's a good question because, you know, the first time George ran for office, he ran for county chairman. I thought he'd been anointed, I have to tell you. <laughs> but they were lucky to get him. He was the president of a company, founded himself, and a, a, just a wonderful, normal, everyday person. And he asked if I minded if he became county chairman. He forgot to tell me he had to run for it. That was as tough a campaign as we were ever in. Notes were slipped under our door. They were very ugly things said. You even got things in the mail talking about you. And my father. Well, the things they talked about me about were so wonderful. I mean, they said I spent every summer on Cape Cod and that my father printed the Red Book. Well, oh, no, that was an heiress, and that my father printed the Red Book. And so my dad was the publisher um, of the McCall Mag, it was the president of the McCall Corporation, which published McCall's and Red Book, which was, as still is, a ladies' magazine. And uh, I wrote my dad and said, you know, well, first of all, I've never put my foot on Cape Cod. At that time, I hadn't. And secondly, am I an heiress? And if so, let me know right now. And I wasn't, darn it. <laughs>
<laughs> Some of the descriptions, your your early years together were just so poignant. Uh, by the way, my wife is a funeral director, and she took some umbrage at the fact that you are cynical about funeral homes. Well, just slightly, but uh, I'm sure your wife is a very sensitive person. Is not kicking the hearse in the backyard. And, <laughs> and she has never smoked in her life. Good girl. You were a smoker at one point. Terrible smoker. Why did you quit? Well, I tried to quit for about, uh, you know, 20 years. But I quit once when I had an operation and a nurse came in. I had a rule I never smoked in bed and I was just barely still groggy and under the influence of the anesthetic. And I got up out of bed with all these things in my arm and uh, had a cigarette on the side and a wonderful nurse came in and just absolutely chewed me up and down and said this most outrageous thing. You get back in that bed and I'm coming in in the morning. And she waited until the shifts changed and on her own time came in and said, do you realize how addicted you are? You you have an addiction. Well, I don't know. I'd never heard that word before. We hear it a lot now. But she said, "You, this is the most outrageous thing. And it really impressed me that she stayed over, tired as she was. And number one, she felt very strongly. So when George went away, I gave it up. I broke out in cold sweats. I was addicted. I was miserable. I couldn't sit down. I uh, gained quite a bit of weight, but I gave up smoking, and I've never regretted it. In listening to some of the interviews that you've been doing so far, it, it strikes me that, that everyone wants to try to get you somehow to compare yourself with some other or another first lady or, or some future first lady or some past first lady. Then you know the answer. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you must you must be a little tired, a little frustrated of people trying to, trying to get you to do that. Yeah, different strokes for different folks. And what really amuses me is that Eleanor Roosevelt was the biggest activist any first lady's ever been before or since. She was much more visible than Mrs. Clinton, and people ought to remember that. She wrote an article daily for money. (laughs) If a first lady wrote something for money today, they'd get killed. You You really have to have a common sense attitude to survive in that job, don't you? I think so. But you do in life. It, it's it's regular life just sort of blown up, but it's a very nice life. Is there a particularly dumb... You don't have to tell me what the question was, but it was there a particularly dumb question you've been asked on, on, this, trip? Tu- on this trip so far? Not, I mean, you don't have to repeat really. the question, no, but... Uh, are, not are, are, really. Are you pleased with what you're getting? Uh, fair. <laughs> fair, I think. <laughs> I think what's really interesting to me is I hadn't realized that two paragraphs on a depression would make so much news, I'm now realizing that that was probably a pretty good thing. I was trying to be honest in the book and to write everything that I thought had some... um, I wanted to be honest, and that was a terrible six months in my life. I'm glad I did it now, because a lot of people are saying, doctors, we're glad Mrs. Bush did that, because she's telling people, go get help. And it's there for people. I was too proud and dumb and stupid to realize that I needed to go get help. I outgrew it. I was very lucky. But I now am more sympathetic to other people. I think it's a very painful thing. Have, have you found that interviewers or readers, the people that you meet, are surprised to hear that you're not bitter and, and unhappy and, and yes. things about, about, your, about Mr. Bush's defeat and now you've had to leave the White House? And my gosh, she must be angry, mustn't she? 
No, everybody reacts differently, but my goodness, we've had a good time. And I know people think this is baloney, but I'd rather be with George Bush any place in the world. He is the best, most thoughtful, um, just he's most considerate of other people. And I, of course, hated for him to lose, and he hated to lose, but we're, you just don't worry about what you can't do. And we're thrilled. We've got two boys running. We're out of politics, and um, we're, we're very happy. Barbara Bush died in April of 2018. She was 92. George H.W. Bush died seven months later. He was 94. And you can find easy Amazon links to Barbara Bush's book at our website, heardeverything.com. Would you do me a favor? If you like today's episode, would you please tell a friend about Now I've Heard Everything? We post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and you can find us on all major podcast platforms, and you can find all of our past episodes at our website, heardeverything.com. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, he's often been credited as the mastermind of the Watergate break-in, the third-rate burglary that eventually brought down President Richard M. Nixon. But maybe not necessarily so, as you'll hear in my 1991 interview with G. Gordon Liddy. I would not have gone to prison for John Dean. I would uh, go to prison for my president anytime. I was being led to believe that I was doing this for the president. The president didn't even know about it. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson.